Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Chris and the rest of our team. And good morning to you on all three of our floors or watching remotely. My name's Eric Barton, and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. And I want to belatedly wish all of you a very happy Thanksgiving. I hope you had a wonderful time with friends and family. And just me saying family and Thanksgiving makes some of you look at one another and roll your eyes. <laughs> it's okay. Remember, your family's now doing the same thing about you. They're remembering how you were just this past weekend. They're all going, oh man, I'm so glad they're gone. But we're black here together. We are a church family, and I'm glad to be together on this, the first Sunday of Advent. Advent means the arrival, the first arrival of the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. For thousands of years, the church has celebrated, commemorated, and contemplated the coming of Christ. We do this the fourth Sunday before Christmas Day, and the church all over the world, through space and time, has celebrated first Advent. This birth of Jesus of Nazareth in Bethlehem was the culmination, was sort of the, uh, the climax of thousands of years of longing of the people of Israel wondering, where is the Lamb? When will God send the long-awaited hope? When will God provide the one that will restore, that will lead us out of death and into life? And we see that foreshadowed back in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there is one massive omega moment. The New Testament, clearly the omega moment, is the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus following his incarnation, his first coming. In the Old Testament, there is one massive omega moment that prepares us ultimately for the coming of Christ. It is the Exodus. When God leads his children, Israel, out of Egypt and into the land of blessing, prosperity, and promise. There's a wonderful picture, if you think about Israel, coming out of Egypt, this land of separation, of darkness, of bondage, of slavery, of death, of hopelessness and helplessness. And God leads them through essentially a death as they come through the Red Sea and they emerge alive as God's son. In God's sovereign wisdom, together with the actuality of human history, God binds all this together and says that was all preparatory. It might have seemed accidental or coincidental. It was not. It was all a part of God's plan. So that much later, the prophet Hosea, this love letter from God to Israel. The prophet Hosea talks about this experience of Israel coming up out of Egypt. The prophet Hosea puts it this way in Hosea chapter 11, verse one. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. It's the prophet Hosea saying, don't you see who you are, Israel? Don't you see whose you are? Don't you see, despite all of your rebellion, all of your recklessness, all of your restlessness, he loves us. He called you out of death when you had no hope, when you had no help. He loves you. He rescued you. Now, the gospel writer Matthew, writing primarily to a Jewish audience, picks up on that idea, and he amplifies it, and he magnifies it. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Matthew's going to tell us very dramatically that Jesus, this one person, he is true Israel. It's him. It's a person. He says in Matthew chapter 2, and he, that's Joseph, rose and took the child, Jesus, and his mother Mary by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, this morning, 
we're going to talk about this foundation of Advent, this idea of coming up out of Egypt. It's the title of our sermon. That expression, out of Egypt, happens 56 times in the Old Testament. It's a massive meta-narrative of what our Bible is doing to prepare us for the coming of Messiah, being led out of Egypt. This is our 12th and final sermon on the book of Genesis. We've been at it this whole fall semester. It's a story of God, the redemption of a fallen people by a God who astonishingly associates himself with Larry Moe and Curly, you might say. When God comes to Moses in the Exodus event and says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is not him bragging. It is him saying, I am the kind of God who associates with you, your kind of people, and I do not blush. You see, it shouldn't even be a thing that a holy God would reconcile a fallen people to himself, but it is. And not only that, he reconciled these people such that they themselves will be reconcilers. We will reiterate and repeat and say the same thing over and over again, what we've said now for many weeks, the big idea for this entire series and for this morning's sermon as well is that God is faithful. This passage this morning will accomplish Moses' grand theme and his thrust of telling the people of Israel and ultimately, therefore, by extension, us, who this God is, what he's like, what he has done, and therefore, who we are and therefore how we are to live in joy and in liberty. So while you are turning with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49, Genesis chapter 49, let me give you a very quick and efficient on-ramp. We've been studying through the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham, this 75-year-old pagan moon worshiper with a barren wife. And he says, that's my guy. That's how I'm going to redeem the world. All its violence, all of its error and sin and depravity, that's my guy. This guy sitting in Ur of the Chaldeans, I'm gonna bring redemption through him. And so we have this promise, this covenant, this oath to Abraham. Finally, the seed is born. It's Isaac. And Isaac himself will have Two twins, Jacob and Esau, and we've been studying these last several weeks, the life of Jacob. This guy who just always seems to get it wrong. This guy who's always trying to struggle with God in one way or another. By the time we come to Genesis chapter 49, we've already departed mostly the Jacob aspect of the narrative of Genesis. Now we're in the Joseph story from Genesis 37 all the way through to the end of the book. We're in the Joseph narrative, but that's another series for another time. We're going to fast forward to the end and pick back up in the story of Jacob as it comes to a close. Now, Jacob has lived in the land of Canaan for about 17 years. Uh, he's now 130 years old, and he goes down to Egypt. And his son Joseph, you might know the stories, who just so happens to be the prime minister, the number two in command of all of Egypt, welcomes his father and his brothers through a whole lot of uh, soap opera-style narrative. And Joseph introduces his father Jacob to Pharaoh. And we're told this text in Genesis chapter 47, verses 8 and 9. Jacob is introduced to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Now that's fascinating. That's how he sums up his life up to this point. 130 years, few and evil. 
have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. So Jacob goes down at 130 years old. He's going to stay in Egypt 17 years while all his descendants are busy making other descendants. They were a fruitful and a multiplying people. Finally, at the end of his life, 17 years later, Jacob has been in Egypt. It's time for him to die. And he's not like his father, Isaac, who says, boys, it's time for me to die. And then Isaac lives another 35 years. No, Jacob knows it's his time to die. And so he brings all of his sons together on his deathbed. And he names them one by one with specificity. And he blesses them. But it's more than just a blessing. It is a prophetic oracle saying, this is your name, this is what you have done, who you have been, and therefore, this is the trajectory that is marked out for you by God. And he starts at the top in Genesis chapter 49, and he starts with Reuben, and he heaps this amazing blessing on Reuben. You're my guy, you're my firstborn, you're amazing, but you are like boiling water. You've broken out all over the place. You tried to supplant my authority. You grasped for preeminence, you will not have my blessing. You will not receive the double portion. You went to my couch, he screams, which is really gross. This usurping that Reuben attempts way back in Genesis 35. You will not be the next one. Then he moves down the line, Simeon and Levi. He puts them together and he literally calls them, you are sons of anarchy. The very first sons of anarchy. It's you guys. You did not distinguish between the Lord's vengeance and man's vengeance, and you went out and slaughtered people. You will have no portion. You will be scattered. He moves on to Judah, and this is a lengthy blessing he gives to Judah. It's astonishing. He says, Judah, through you will come a literal paradise kingdom on earth. Everyone's teeth will be white from drinking so much milk. Their eyes will be dark from drinking so much wine. That's a weird party. <laughs> but what he's saying is, this one that will come from you will utterly eliminate scarcity. You will no longer have to claw and scratch for existence. In fact, there will be so much resources. There will be abundance. There will be joy. There will be liberty. And there will be life. Judah, it's coming through you. Did Jacob understand all that he was writing when he writes this? Probably not any more than David doesn't understand what he's writing in Psalm 110, talking about the messianic priest king that will come. But he gives this utterance to Judah. It's going to come through you. And by the way, you get into it and you realize, oh, Judah, he's kind of a dirtbag. He does some really bad things in Genesis 38. We'll talk about that in another sermon series for another time. After Judah, we're talked about Zebulun. Zebulun, you will be a seafaring people, which they must have gone, what? Jewish people are terrified of the sea. But Jacob says, you're going to be a seafaring people. And they go, we can't swim. In fact, they're a territorial allotment wasn't even on the Mediterranean Sea. Jacob says, you're going to be fine, boys. Hold your breath. Next, we have Issachar. Issachar, you're, well, it's a great blessing to give to your son. Issachar, you're like a donkey. <laughs> you're strong. You're just not real bright. And you're going to be a good hard worker for somebody else for all of your days. And sure enough, that's the people of Issachar, forced labor for much of their generational history. Then we get the tribe of Dan. Dan was to be a judge, to administer justice. But instead, Dan and his people choose deceit and trickery. They are the first tribe in Israel to practice idolatry. Jacob says, you will be like a snake on the side of the road, snatching people as they pass. A very terrifying utterance. After Dan, we have this strange little interlude where Jacob says, 
but I wait for my God's salvation. I'm looking at you boys and I'm thinking, oy vey, but I wait for God's salvation. And then he picks right back up and he goes into Gad. Gad, your name means raider or attacker. You will be attacked, you will be raided, but you will raid back, he says of Gad. And Gad's like, this kind of seems like not a whole lot of fun, Dad. Can we, uh, can we anything else? No, that's what's gonna happen. You're gonna be raided. He goes to Asher. Asher, which means happy. Listen to this for Asher. You will be agricultural and you will work the land productively for food. That's amazing. If any of you in this congregation know our own Asher, that's Asher. He's happy. He's got so much dirt under his nails at this very, very moment because he's just agricultural. These names mean things. They matter. They sort of hold a crown over our heads and our children rise up to fit them. After Asher, we've got Naphtali, a very, very brief blessing. You're going to be a mountain people, and you're going to be happy. And sure enough, they lived in the northwest part of the Galilee, what is near Mount Arbel, and they were a rigorous, fighting mountain people that are very central in the book of Judges. Then Joseph. Joseph receives the biggest blessing. He's the prince of his brothers, and yet he himself is not a tribe. He has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and Manasseh is the older. And when Joseph presents his own sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to, J to Jacob, Jacob comes to bless them. And as is the fashion, as is the custom, Joseph puts Manasseh on Jacob's right knee. He puts Ephraim on his left knee. And so Jacob goes, yoink! And he blesses the younger first. And Joseph doesn't like it. Joseph tries to pry his hands loose. He says, no, dad, you're blind and not very bright. It goes like this. And Jacob says, oh, no, 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 I got this. I know, my son, I know. The older will serve the younger. I wonder where Jacob got that notion. And he blesses Ephraim. And sure enough, Ephraim becomes a mighty, mighty warlike tribe. And they're a central tribe of northern Israel. Joshua comes from the tribe of uh, Ephraim. Finally, it's Benjamin. The, the last son of Jacob, the son of Rachel, you will be a ravenous wolf. You will be a violent people. And sure enough, you get into the book of Judges chapter 20 and they were a very cruel people indeed. And yet, from Benjamin comes the first king of Israel, King Saul. From Benjamin comes the apostle Paul. Benjamin is the tribal allotment where the city of Jerusalem is. This is how Jacob ends his life, speaking identity into the future of his sons. And so now at long last, Genesis chapter 49, let's begin reading in verse 28. Genesis chapter 49, beginning in verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. A little bit of a play on words here. Moses is wanting us to know because he wants the children of Israel to know. Who you are is not by accident. Your father, Jacob, your father, Israel, spoke this into you, and he barach you, and he barakah you with the barakah. This word we've heard over and over again, this blessing. Now, I have heard in the 21st century, I've heard this taught, perhaps you have as well, that this is how we are to bless our children. And no, it isn't. You don't tell your child, you're going to get raided, you're going to get robbed, you're going to get burglarized, beat down, and you're going to die miserable and alone. Go get him, tiger. That's not how we bless our kids. For starters, you're not an Old Testament prophet that's receiving an oracle from God. But what we do is speak into them identity, not because they're pretty, not because they're smart, not because they're athletic, but because they're gods. Not little G gods. They are not gods. They belong to God, do you see? And how we treat them is all the difference in the world. This is what Jacob does. He speaks blessing into them. Now then, continuing on, verse 29, then he commanded them. This is not a recommendation. This is not advice. This is not a suggestion. This is Jacob's last will and testament. 
he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. And we get all this detail. It's interesting how many people, me included, will go to such lengths, such details to plan a vacation or to plan a move from one city to the next. But so many people that I encounter when I do their funerals or counsel them before they go have made no thought, no plan whatsoever about their death. Not so with Jacob. He is ready to pass this on to his sons. This is the longest deathbed scene in your Bible. The only death that is talked about for more real estate textually is that of Jesus. This is the longest death because your Bible doesn't really want to concern itself all that much with death because it's a transition into something that's way, way better. But here Jacob makes plans. I'm about to be gathered to my fathers. I'm finally about to die. We're going to move from it being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the God of, New East Texas translation, y'all. The God of a covenant community, a messianic people. So he says, I'm to be gathered to my people. Bear me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, in the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. Why is he giving so much detail? Because I want to remind you, they're in Egypt. This is not an easy ask. Hey, boys, just throw me outside by the river. No, you're going to have to take a multi-day journey up to the land of Canaan. But there's an interesting boundarying to Jacob's request for his burial. I'm not going to go up to the northeast in the land of Haran, where I spent 20 years with my uncle Laban. I'm not going back up there. I'm not going to stay down here in the southwest in Egypt. No, I'm going to end up in the center of the promise that God has made. Jacob is demonstrating that he trusts God. Bury me in this field and this cave at Machpelah. We've already seen Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah interred at this cave. Verse 31, there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. Man, that gets me. This is the only time we're told of her death. We're not told anywhere else that she has died, but clearly she has. And at some point, Jacob has made the journey and he's taken his weak in the eyes wife that he was not a fan of at all. And yet, she is identified here as his wife, not Rachel. There I took Leah. So you've got Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Leah, and she's waiting for me. I'm going to be gathered to my people. You can almost hear the expectation, the anticipation, the exhilaration, where Jacob is not afraid of what's about to happen. He's looking forward to who he will see. Of course, his God, again, but he'd already seen his God, and now he wants to be gathered to his people. This is how the Christian enters into the prospect and the certainty of death, the anticipation, the exhilaration, not with fear. Verse 32, in the field and the cave that is in where uh, we were bought from the Hittites. Verse 33, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. And so Jacob dies. That generation concludes... We move into chapter 50, and we're going to hear about his burial. Very briefly now. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Now, it's interesting. Joseph is a bit of a crier. It's okay. He's not afraid. He's not ashamed at all. Six different times in Joseph's narrative, we see Joseph weeping and wailing. What's interesting is the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 20, tells us that when Jacob dies, he's got nothing but his staff that he's clinging to and he's worshiping as he draws his last breath and dies. That's what the book of Hebrews says. This Jacob, 
who left Bethel decades and decades earlier, having been at the escalator of God, goes away with nothing but his staff, is now back in the land of Canaan, then down in Egypt. All he's got is his staff. He's a pilgrim to the very, very end. It's a picture of our lives. We're never really fully home until we're fully home, until we're ushered into the presence and the rest of our God and our people. This is how Jacob dies. And I think Joseph sees that and he just weeps. He falls on his father's neck and he kisses him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now, there's some very precise language here. There were two categories of people in Egypt that would do the embalming. Now famous, there were the embalmers and there were the physicians. Now, the embalmers would do some things that would prepare you for the afterlife. All this sort of magician and idolatrous stuff. And Joseph says, no, we'll have none of that, thank you. No, no, we're just going to use the physicians, those who were focused on the physiological aspects of embalming. He did not want any of that idolatrous, magical mumbo-jumbo performed on his father, even though they're in Egypt. But watch what happens. Forty days were required for this embalming, and that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him Seventy days. Now, this is a concurrent thing. While they are embalming Jacob, it takes 40 days. During that process, they weep and mourn for him 70 days. And you kind of think, boy, I don't know. After day 45, you're like, I'm just not feeling it anymore. But that guy. And the Egyptians are wailing and weeping for Jacob, this foreigner. But that's how important Joseph was as the prime minister. Now, what's fascinating, the typical mourning period for a Pharaoh is 72 days. They weep for Jacob two days shy of what they weep for a Pharaoh. This is a super high distinguishing honor for the father of Joseph. When the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh saying. It's strange there. Joseph is the prime minister of Egypt. Why can't he just go and tell Pharaoh himself? Because in Egypt, there's a law. If you are in mourning, you cannot approach the king because, you know, you'll kind of bring him down. If you're in mourning, you can't approach the king because he doesn't want to be bothered with your sadness. But praise be to God, side note, we don't have a God king like that. In the midst of our misery, that's when we go to him and he welcomes us and embraces us. He is called in the New Testament, the God of all comfort. It's who he is. It's what he does. We don't have to go... I'm kind of bringing you down. I got some breath issues. I'm sorry, God. No, no. That's when we charge the throne of his grace with confidence. So Joseph has to speak to the household and the, the officials of Pharaoh. He says in verse five, my father made me swear. And by the way, it's a very serious swearing that Joseph has to do. Jacob says, here, put your hand under my thigh and swear. And Joseph's like, I'm an Egyptian now. This is weird. Okay, here we go. I swear. And then it's over. It's a solemn, solemn oath. If I don't make good on my promise, then your ancestry, your lineage will get me. And so Jacob, or Joseph says, my father made me swear saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out or that I bought for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up, listen to this. Listen to this entourage, verse seven. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. 
It's pretty much everybody in charge of anything goes with Joseph and Joseph's brothers to bury Jacob back in the land of Canaan, as well as all the household of, jo of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. Later we'll find out that's the land of Ramses. It's on the eastern Nile Delta. So pretty much everybody in Egypt, except for Pharaoh and the goats, goes with Joseph to go up and bury Jacob. It's an astonishing thing. But it's not just an interesting numeric entourage. This massive entourage is, again, planned by God and his sovereignty and his wisdom. This is Isaiah 66. This is Micah chapter 4. It's a picture of all of the nations processing in with horse and chariot and pomp and circumstance, flowing into the land that God has promised because it is the center of the cosmos. And we're getting a foreshadowing and a prefiguring of that massive entourage here. Verse 9, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company, just like we see again in Isaiah 66, Micah 4, and in the book of Revelation. Verse 10, and when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, interesting, Joseph chooses a very clever spot, a threshing floor. Now, we hear that and we think, well, why? Well, because a threshing floor is an elevated flat platform because they would thresh their grain, throw it up in the wind, and the winds on a high elevated platform would blow away the chaff. And so Joseph selects this place just west of the Jordan River in the land of Canaan to stop and to have another week's worth of mourning and weeping for his father. And they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, that's west of the Jordan. They lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. So now we're into 77 days. Verse 11, when the inhabitants of the land, that's the Canaanites, the Canaanites saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. <laughs> Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim, it is beyond the Jordan. Abel Mizraim is an intentional play on words. It means the meadow of the Egyptians. It also means the mourning, the weeping, the wailing of the Egyptians. They had no idea. They misunderstood. They thought this was about the Egyptians. No, this is about Israel coming up out of Egypt to possess the land. They misunderstood. They did not know that God was doing a thing in through and with these people, Israel. He was going to make good on his promise because God is faithful. He can't help but be that way. Verse 12, thus his sons did for him as he had commanded him, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan. You get the impression that the procession stops here at this threshing floor, and then it's just the 12 brothers who finish the journey and go up to the cave at Machpelah. Just like in chapter 25, you have Isaac and Ishmael burying Abraham. Like in chapter 35, you have Jacob and Esau burying Isaac. Now you have all 12 of them gathered together, including Joseph and all of his eyeliner, because <laughs> he's Egyptian now. All 12 of them take their father Jacob to the tomb of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah and Leah. And now it passes to them, the covenant community, the messianic people. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of Mach, uh, the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, with eight, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. Moses is being very specific with all this to remind them, this is God's promise. This is God's provision. This is God's plan. It's yours. Do not be afraid. Now that's important. God's got this. Verse 14, after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Joseph goes back to work. 
And what you find is that the brothers go back down to Egypt, again, departing from the land of promise. Four different times will these brothers depart the land of promise and go into Egypt. There's this sort of yo-yoing as they're in the land of promise and there's prosperity, but no, they have to go out again. And then they're back in the land of promise, but no, they have to go out again. You ever been there? Of course you have. And yet God identifies himself with us, with those kinds of people who do those kinds of things. So what are we to take away from all this? This whole series, these 12 weeks, I've been trying to beat the drum to proclaim the refrain that God is faithful. So in response to that, what is the theme of this morning's passage as we wrap this whole series up? I only have one summary implication for us to take away from this passage, just the one. I suppose if I can start the Advent season off with a gift, it would be to give a truth in view of our semester idea that God is faithful. And since that's true, and it is, here's our big idea. It's quite simple. It goes like this. It's not on me. It's not on me. That's it. The whole theme of the book of Genesis is that God is faithful. So what? Now what? Why should you and I care? Let me relieve the burden. It's what Moses is trying to tell the children of Israel. It's not on you. And so let me tell us all individually and as a church family, a congregation, it's not on you. It's not on me. I thought and I wondered and I prayed and I struggled and I stressed about how I would finally land this Genesis series. Back in September, I was thinking, okay, November 28th is coming. It's going to be the end of the series. It's going to be the first Sunday of Advent. How do I land this? And as I prayed about it, I just felt like very clearly the Lord's going, you, you, you're the struggler in chief of Bethel downtown. It's you. And let me just remind you, it's not on you. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. But, but what is the theological underpinning of this passage? And God's going, no, you idiot. It's not on you. You just preach. You just lead. You just love. And God's going to do what God's going to do. So it's not on me. And I also want to say by extension to you, it's not on you. Your life, I mean. Now, let me get very, very specific and very practical. If you think your joy is your project, if you think your prosperity and your blessing and your fulfillment are ultimately up to you, and we all come into this world with that default depraved assumption, our failure, our fear of trusting God, that if it's to be, it's up to me. I've got to get what I want in this scarcity-driven world. I've got to grasp and cling and struggle to myself. If you still operate that way, even instinctively, well then, you will instinctively do whatever you think it takes to make that happen. Look at the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and later all of their descendants. And yet, God still calls himself the God of those kinds of people. Why? Because God wants us to enjoy life and joy and liberty in the here and now. But if you and I, if you think you're responsible for making your dream come true, then you will inevitably find it necessary to lie. Just bend the truth ever so slightly to make that dream happen. You can count on it. I don't even have to make eye contact. You're already there, and so am I. If you think you've got to do whatever it takes, then you will, and you have. And there's grace for that. You'll start slow, and then you'll bend the rules here and there so that you can get what you think you really want and inwardly think you're entitled to until finally, you're just like Jacob and his forefathers, making a struggling mess of dumpster fires everywhere. We call that trying to pry the blessing out of God's hand. You ever been there? Of course you have. God love you, and so have I. 
God has promised life and life abundant. Not an easy life, but a life in his spirit, fed by his word, nourished by his people. And yet we try to pray it out of his hand. I want it now, God. Give me, give me, give me. God's going, I've already promised you such blessing. Relax. Look how Jacob numbers his days. My days have been few and evil. It didn't have to be that way. We have no record that Jacob ever enjoyed any bit of his life whatsoever. You, know, you never hear of Jacob going, you know what, boys? I think I'll have a steak and a pinata. <laughs> never. He's a miserable struggler. He's 147 years of life. It didn't have to be that way. When you find yourself trying to pry God's hands open, not realizing that his heart and his hands are wide open. But when we do that, You'll find yourself making promises that you can't ever fulfill. You'll come up with every excuse imaginable when you don't fulfill those promises, and you'll get angrier and angrier all along the way. At that point, it's not really even about you trying to have joy or to be fulfilled. You've simply slipped into a never-ending collapse and implosion of trying to be sovereign over your own life and failing miserably and darkening the souls of everybody around you. It's not on you. It's not on you. God loved Jacob and kept his promise to Jacob, but the tragedy is that we have no indication that he ever had a good life. He lived his life trying to hustle the blessings that God had promised. See, our enemy comes to us and he whispers very subtle, very clever, very catchy things like, you've got to break a few eggs if you want an omelet. And we begin to listen to that. Doesn't God want you to be happy? No, he does want you to be his and whole and holy. Again, one of my heroes, Craig Barnes, he puts it this way. The most deadly temptation is not about our wants, but about the means we will use to get them. That's how he comes at us. When we sacrifice our honor or our character to get what we want or what we think we need, we end up with neither our honor nor the blessing that we wanted so badly in the first place. Our enemy has deceived us and he wasn't even having to try all that hard. See it all the time. Husbands think it's on them, their, their dream to come true. And so it doesn't happen because they're trying to pry the blessing out of God's hand. And so husbands are mean to their wives. Mean, angry, hateful, spiteful, demanding respect. Where does that come from? You can just see them trying to pry the blessing out of God's hand. Wives manipulate their husbands, trying to get the attention and the affection they think they deserve. Parents scream at their kids because the kid wasn't nice and respectful. You ever see this? Like parents screaming, you need to be nice! You need to behave yourself and be respectful! And the kid's going, my face is melting. Because the parent has this mistaken assumption that it's on them and it's not on them. Or you'll see Christians view other humans as objects that are merely means to an end. But no, 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 no. These 12 weeks in Genesis, we have sought and seen over and over again that God is faithful, and so it's not on me. It's what Moses wanted the Israelites to understand. It's what God would certainly have us understand through the rest of his inspired word that's been written and given to us. And so, when we are tempted to do any prying of the blessing from God's hands, let's take away from this Advent season already and practice of saying to ourselves over and over again, it's not on me. When you find yourself about to fudge on an expense report or on your taxes or tell a sort of 97% truth to your spouse, wait, it's not on me. It's not on me. I don't have to crowbar this blessing out of God's hand. I don't have to struggle for this. It's not on me. God's got this. God is faithful. It's not on me. 
Let me hear you. It's not on me. One more time. It's not on me. See, that wasn't so hard. But you're going to forget, and so will I, unless you really and truly spend this Advent season looking at Jesus. Because I can just about assume right now that many of us in this room, on any of our floors or watching remotely, are going, yeah, 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 but what do I do? I've got real needs. I've got real struggles. I've got real questions. I've got uncertainties, fears, and doubts. What do I do? Look at Jesus. I, I can't tell you which job to take or where to move or who to marry, who not to. I, can't, I can tell you to look at Jesus, this ultimate Israel who leads us out of the ultimate Egypt. See, Egypt is always a metaphor for death, sin, and separation. But our Israel has led us through by himself becoming sin and death and leading us through the exodus into life prosperity, bounty, and blessing. This is Advent, and he will come again. See, he is faithful. He is faithful. It's not on you. If nothing else, this Advent season, as we wrap up our series in Genesis, take that away. God is faithful. It's not on you. And you and I can walk into this Advent season in liberty and in joy. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. For this word, thank you for these 12 weeks in the book of Genesis. Thank you for these, your people. And fathers, I've been thinking about and praying for this time together this morning. It has struck me again and again, all the pain, all the fear, frustration, anxiety, uncertainty, and doubt that characterizes a good many of us. And so would you help us to breathe deeply at the soul level, to trust that you are faithful. It's not on us. We can live in liberty and joy and freedom and delight in the here and now. There's enough. There's enough. There's enough. What you have provided is enough. You are enough. So, Father, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, that knows a good deal about you, that is still trying to slug it out life, trying to pry a blessing from this world or from you, would you soothe their soul by your spirit and usher them into life out of death, out of Egypt? Would you do for them what you have done for us? For those of us, Father, who are yours, like Jacob was, who knew you and saw you and yet continued to struggle, would you give us peace by your spirit as you remind us through your word, as you encourage us with your people that you love us, you are faithful, and it's not on us. And so may we be characterized by joy this Advent season. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he's coming again. Even so, come quickly. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.